Hello, I'm Monsignor Jim Lasanti. Today on Personally Speaking, I'll be joined by New York Times best-selling author Nelson DeMille and his son, screenwriter and director Alex DeMille. Nelson and Alex recently co-authored their first novel together. It's called The Deserter. Please stay with us. Hello and welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, and Nelson DeMille and Alex DeMille join me now. Nelson DeMille is a New York Times bestselling author of 20 novels, six of which were number one New York Times bestsellers. His novels include The Cuban Affair, Plum Island, and The General's Daughter, which was made into a major motion picture starring John Travolta and Madeline Stowe. Nelson is a combat-decorated U.S. Army veteran, a member of Mensa, Poets and Writers, the Authors Guild and a member and past president of the International Thriller Writers. Nelson's son, Alex DeMille, is a writer, a director, and a film editor. He grew up on Long Island and received a bachelor's degree from Yale University and a Master of Fine Arts in film directing from UCLA. Alex has won multiple awards and fellowships for his screenplays and films, including The Absence, which was named Best Film at Comic-Con in 2012. Nelson and Alex collaborated for the first time, co-authoring the suspenseful military novel, The Deserter. This wonderful father-son team are here with us today to discuss their work together. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, Nelson DeMille and Alex DeMille. Alex, let me start with a non-novel question that I've been dying to ask someone who would know, and who better than you. What, what kind of a dad was Nelson DeMille? <laughs> uh... <laughs> He was, uh, well, he was a great dad. I mean, we, um, uh, you know, it, growing up with him was, um, it kind of gave, I think it was, I was lucky in that it gave me license to obviously hung up around a creative person, but I think it also gave me license to kind of be creative and, and pursue it on my own. So I, you know, grew up with stories I and mean, reading history and, uh, plenty of practical jokes and lot, it was, it was a place, it was definitely a place where it fostered a lot of imagination and kind of playfulness and creativity. So that was nice. And we always took times on trips and, you know, I feel I felt like it was a very, um, it was a good childhood, good dad. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. And let me ask you too, because Nelson's been a guest on our show before. He's talked about the values that have sustained him in his life. Do you remember Alex offhand uh, how Dad effectively communicated the things that he valued to you? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I, I, do you want to answer that? <laughs> no, um, no. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> Effectively communicated the values. I, I, I'm trying to think of specific examples, but I do. I do feel like I mean, I'm, a, I'm a new parent myself right now. I have a 20 month old daughter. Uh, right? but it was you always know, looking for uh, kind of learning moments. You know, even at this young age. You know, like when, when do you, when do you kind of pause to to to, 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 to kind of put whatever is happening into a bigger context? And I do feel I have a sense he did that a lot. Um, whether it came just just um, you know, I grew up in a very uh, privileged background and uh i was always it was always um he always made sure i knew that yeah <laughs> you know and then to, say, to know that you know you understand that you're fortunate um not everybody's fortunate and be grateful for it um that was a very important uh that was a very one of the most important uh i think values i grew up with yeah 
You know, uh, my first parish was St. Boniface in Elmont, and I've said to your dad before that um, the people in Elmont are salt-of-the-earth people, and one of the things I've loved about your dad over the years is, while you're right, he's, he's led a privileged life as an adult, but he never seems to have left completely the, the normalcy, the regularity of the good folks of Elmont. Did you feel that, Alex, that he was, at the end of the day, a pretty down-to-earth guy? Absolutely, yeah. I, mean, I think he's somebody that... I mean, he's some, you know, I know his father was a house builder, and I think he's always he's maintained that kind of respect for people who have, who create things, you know, whether it's with with their hands, you know, actually producing things. Yeah. And, um, a book is not a book is not the same thing, but you are actually you're still creating something, you know. It's not a, you're not just kind of spinning the wheels, and you know. But I just so I, I think yeah, he's always had that that value, that down to earth uh, kind of quality about him, and also that value of uh, of, of work, yes. you know, and a good work ethic too. We're here talking with Alex and Nelson DeMille. The new book, which I hope our listeners will get, is called The Deserter. Now, my obvious question, I remember years ago we had interviewed Mary Higgins Clark, and she had a hard time answering this. Hopefully you'll have a better time of it. How, how do two people write one book in terms of finding a similar voice? Well, yeah, you know, um, it's a good question. And we, we had to make that decision right, right up front. You know, there's different ways to collaborate. Sometimes uh, writers will write alternate chapters, which, you know, you want to you want to have two different voices. And, yeah, and also there's a lot of, I guess, rivalry. And sometimes it's not the most pleasant experience. I did it once before with somebody else, a uh, childhood friend of mine from Elmont, Tom Block, mm-hmm. who was the U.S. Air pilot. We wrote May Day together, and it was made into a TV movie, very successful book. But didn't do much for the relationship. We, we barely spoke for about a year until we decided <laughs> to bury that. Better the hatch. I mean, literally, uh, it was just a terrible experience for childhood friends, even though the book itself was successful. So I just decided up front that Alex is going to write the first draft because he's a screenwriter. So he knows how to write and he knows how to, you know, structure a book. And uh, I said, You write the first draft and I'll be the editor. Um, after 40 years in the business, I know how to edit as well as I know how to write. And that man, it worked that way. And Alex did the research, he did the structure, and um, really, you know, um, really wrote the book. Uh, I came in and just uh, gave it that second rewrite that it needed sometimes and not in every place. And I gave back to him with some suggestions and uh, then came back to me and back to Alex for the fifth time. And so it was like five passes and Alex got, you know, final, final cut. And uh, that's what we sent to the agent and the editor. Okay, Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that was that was always the the challenge was how to. I mean, I, I don't have such a distinct voice, which I think has always probably made it one of the reasons that uh, it wasn't an obvious choice to, to collaborate with anybody else. Uh, so I, I'd like to think that by growing up with him, I've kind of internalized that to some degree, and also maybe having read his books um, once I was of an appropriate age, <laughs> and having a kind of I think a certain a certain instinct for. Um, why they work, you know, even if I don't always know how to replicate it or, 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 do, or do that, but I, I certainly have a sense of why, well, this is a Nelson's a mill kind of thing. And maybe this isn't, um, which I think then is also informed my own taste, obviously. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I didn't, I set out not thinking I'm going to try to copy his voice because I wasn't, that's, that's, that's a recipe for failure, but, right. um, knowing the kinds of characters that we, he likes to populate his books with and the kinds of stories, I kind of just took that as a, uh, as a jumping off point and uh, you know knowing that my name's on the book too it's not we're not trying to hide that fact that this is so we want it to be in the same in the same 
uh, same genre, same kind of voice, but doesn't have to be exactly the same. Um, it should it should be a little different. Hopefully, I did bring something a little different to it. But, I was going to uh, ask you, Alex, originally this question, but actually, it applies to both of you. With the deserter. Uh, Alex, you come with this younger and, and creative vision. Uh, your talent is unique to screenwriting in many ways, but your dad is this long-established author. At the same time, your dad wants to, you know, take your gifts and apply them to this writing. What I'm getting at is, were either of you ever intimidated by the necessity of saying to one another, this thing you just wrote or this direction you're going, I think is wrong, uh, are you guys able as father and son and as co-writers to say, I'm not buying what you're selling right now? Oh, that was good. Well, there was a there was a few times that that happened. Um, boy, more for him to me, uh, probably because of his age experience. B, I was the one writing the first pass on everything. Uh, so there was a couple times where I it was rare that I wrote something where you said, this is the right idea, but you didn't do it very well or something like that. It was more that I, I was sometimes kind of getting, I got a little unfocused, especially in the middle of the book. And so in the middle of the screenplay, in the middle of the novel, maybe you're equally difficult. That's kind of where you can easily get lost. And there was like, there was a couple of times where I started going off a little bit of a tangent. Um, and I, I as, as in the role of editor, he said, we don't need these two chapters. We can go from A to D and it's going to be, it's going to work a lot better. You know, um, there was a couple of times we did that. And a little bit of the interplay between the two characters, male, female, uh, uh, CID agents who are closer to my age. They're in their thirties. Um, so there was a couple things, the way they interacted that he, he had, he had done something where I said, well, maybe, you know, and it wasn't even about being PC or, or, or not. It was more about how would, how would a, a man or woman of this age interact with each other? Uh, uh-huh. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was difficult. And at the same time, they come from a background, military background is more, uh, he more experience than I do, so there's some ways in which he would have a better handle on that anyway than I would. So it was a kind of a balance, but uh, I think we were mostly on the same page. And, and Nelson, would you yeah. would you find it easy to tell your son when you thought he wasn't on target? Hey, yeah, uh, you know, Alex was um, um, learning, and he wanted to learn, and uh, I'd say it was a screenwriter, so uh, I think he found a lot of it interesting, a different kind of writing, and um, you know, he he brought he brought a uh, different age perspective right. to the whole process. Uh, you'll see, as you did when you read it, uh, references to some songs, references yeah. to some, uh, you know, some technology that I only have a vague idea of. So, you know, this uh, thing reads young, as my uh, our agents say, uh, the book reads young, meaning probably my books read old. I don't know what they mean by that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so you have, a, you have a young guy who understands that, that generation Having said that, I think one of the things Alex did was um, my my only criticism, major criticism, was like he kind of softened the main character. Yeah, you know, my guys are really you know, kick butt kind of uh, uh, men, maybe from my generation, and Alex is a little bit nicer <laughs> in his personal life and and uh, his writing life. So I said, you got to toughen this guy up. This guy, I wouldn't be afraid of this guy. <laughs> and uh, you know, he got it right away because you know, again, being creative, if you're creative. And you can write a screenplay, you can write a novel with a little training, and, and then the obverse is true. I mean, I cannot write a screenplay by myself. I don't know the rules and regulations of uh, telling a whole story in um, 90 to 100 pages and carrying the whole story through dialogue. So I learned something. I learned that dialogue can carry the plot, too. Uh, with a novel, you have a lot of opportunity to just wander around the page if you want. 
But the screenplay has to be 90 to 100, maybe 120 pages uh, tops. And it's got to tell the whole story through dialogue. Right. So that was interesting to see how he did that. You know, Alex, in another interview, your dad said that he knows that because he's a novelist and he tends to write long, that uh, there were times he goes on and on when maybe it needs to be tightened up. Uh, your gift seems to be the ability to tighten things up. Do you see this, in fact, the dessert of the novel, someday as a screenplay, someday as a movie? I do. I, d- I definitely think it is. I, I didn't, I didn't, while I was writing it, I wasn't thinking about that, um, just because I think you can't really... I think you can't you can't write. I mean, people. Some people do write books then to think, okay, if I write this and it, it's like a film, and somebody's going to buy it, and make it into a movie. And I wasn't thinking like that. Uh-huh. But I, people have told me, it, you know, it reads quote unquote cinematically, whatever that means. But I, I did, I did enjoy the, um, I enjoyed setting the scene, you know, which I think my dad does very well himself. But I enjoyed the the kind of prose element of it that is an important part of a film, but can't really take out much room on the page of a screenplay, you know, describing what places look like, what people look like, et cetera. Uh, so I enjoy all that scene setting, which I maybe is what is people are referring to when they're, they're saying it. They can kind of see all the, the settings and, and, and whatnot when they read the book. So um, I could certainly see it being a movie, yeah. For our listeners, the book is called The Deserter. We're here with Nelson and Alex DeMille, father and son, co-authors of this. One of the things that... Uh I remember you said, Nelson, in another interview, people were asking, why, why was the setting uh, placed in, in Venezuela? And you said, I chose Venezuela because I find strong men and the cult of personality fascinating. And, and I, you're right, but I'm wondering why in 2019, 2020, uh, there's an abundance of uh, strong men and, and, and leaders around the world who are highly nationalistic, highly over-the-top, uh, macho-type guys leading countries. Do, do you guys have any insight into what's going on in our larger culture around the world that people who are specifically strong men seem to be flourishing? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, there was actually a Cuban expression that I came across which says, comes the hour, comes the man. And uh, I believe that sometimes. We saw that certainly in the 1930s with Roosevelt and, you know, and the bad guys. Too. <laughs> right. And we saw it at the right time, you know. Uh, sometimes the right man comes along for the right, right reason. Sometimes it's uh, the wrong man for bad reasons, like uh, in the 30s. Um, it was really more Alex that convinced me Venezuela would be the good setting. Um, you know, we... This this is this book is based loosely on the Bo Bergdahl desertion case with uh, Bo Bergdahl. Remember, yes. deserted Afghanistan and captured by the Taliban. But we you know we took it a step further that he uh, gives, he breaks away from the Taliban, he escapes, and then he has to wind up in a country that's going to be, if anything, worse than Afghanistan. Right. And it was actually Alex that came up with Venezuela. I give him credit; it was, it was a good choice. Alex, you want to add to that? Why Venezuela? Well, I knew that wherever we picked, it was it was a place that I had to spend a lot of time. <laughs> I either had to go there or I had to spend a lot of time researching it, or, or both. Uh, and we ended up not going just because of the, the security situation. Right, but right. I was, um, yeah, I was. I mean, even from back from I think it was '99 when Hugo Chavez was first elected, I always thought he was kind of an interesting character. You know, he's such a large in life kind of like a lot of these guys. He's kind of buffoonish, but also a little frightening. Um, yeah, and. Uh, I thought that in the country itself, which had gone from being this very wealthy country, and obviously had a lot of problems before he came along, which is why a guy like him comes along. You know, I mean, I think a lot of these people who are kind of coming into prominence now, it's because of these 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 problems that have been simmering, and eventually, people somebody comes along and gives a simple solution to very complex problems, and people are are drawn to that. Um, and I thought that as well, because specifically because. Um, 
you had this kind of, it wasn't just the cult of personality of Chavez himself, but it was the way they kind of threw back their own history with Simon Bolivar. And mm-hmm. it just seemed like a place that was, it was kind of full of like interesting meaning. And also, and also the fact that it's in America's backyard. And if we're talking about one of the themes of the book is that these wars that are dragging on forever in yeah. Afghanistan and there's a larger war on terror. And in a way of it is the United States going to turn its eye back towards the, towards, uh, its own hemisphere, you know, back to kind of what, what the way ways we used to meddle um, is one one thing I was thinking about. Uh, it's, it's a world that I think probably used to be a lot more in, in American uh, consciousness than it is now. Right. So I thought it'd be, it'd be an interesting place to come back, but something different than, than the Middle East again. Interestingly enough, Pope Francis, no less a person than Pope Francis, regularly in his talks has been warning us about uh, the dangers of nationalism and strongmen who use nationalism to capture their people. And I, maybe going back to what you were saying, Nelson, maybe the Holy Father's fear is that we return to the 30s in terms of some of the bad dictators that arose from that. Uh, I want to, I you know, just not to move from Bergdahl for a second in Afghanistan, because uh, for our listeners, Nelson DeMille also had the experience of serving in the military with honor and, and serving in Vietnam. And uh, Nelson, I'm old enough as you are to remember that for all the peace talks, I think we all knew in the back of our minds that as soon as we get out of there, it's all over. The Vietnamese are going to fall under communist influence. I'm thinking the same thing now with all these talks with the Taliban. That you know, yes, the Americans to death, but once we're out of there, Afghanistan is is Taliban territory again. Am I wrong? Am I being cynical because of Vietnam? I mean, what's your hope? No, I think you're, you're totally right. And um, it's funny. I um, about three weeks ago, I went to a, uh, a Vietnam veterans dinner. Uh, at the Union League Club, they 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 uh, had a dinner for Vietnam veterans, <laughs> and there's fewer of us now. We look a little bit old, but the, the guest speaker, uh, the surprise guest speaker, was Henry Kissinger. None other than it was issue two. General Petraeus spoke, ah. and then Henry Kissinger spoke, and he got up and he spoke about the Paris Peace Accords for about half an hour, uh, basically justifying <laughs> uh, what turned out to be a disaster. Right, right. And you know, and I found it amazing half a century later. This is still on his mind. He could have just thanked us for our service and whatever. But this is obviously um, something that he's obsessing on. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were Vietnam veterans, but, uh, you know, most of us, I think, at this club uh, were probably officers. Or, you know, I think so. I think one of the people I'm remembering was the officers. You know, educated people. And we, uh, we're not going to be convinced that the Paris Peace Talks were anything but what they were, a sham. Yeah. We do it then, we know it now, and uh, for Dr. Kissinger is still going on about how it could have worked, it should have worked, and never was going to work, right, absolutely right. right. Yeah. So, as soon as the Taliban, you know, Ben Franklin said, uh, neither a fortress nor a virgin will hold out long after they begin to negotiate, yeah. <laughs> and that's where we are now. Uh, we're negotiating with the wrong people. You don't negotiate with, we didn't negotiate with the Nazis, thank God, Yeah. and uh, the Taliban had, uh, no, no different than the Nazis. I'm sorry, they're no different than the Nazis. No, people shouldn't even be spoken to. I, but that's my personal opinion. I, I think you're onto something there. And Alex, if you have a different point of view, we welcome it. But I, I you know, tell us by all means. Uh, no, I think I think the war. I mean, the, uh, I think the war was lost uh, when when we invaded Iraq. When that that was. I mean, I think I think maybe there was a chance. You know, back when. Because the beginning of the war seemed to be executed very well, yes. because it was a plan that they clearly had in their back pocket, you know, um, and they knew what they were doing, and and it got, yeah, I mean, it got. I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert on it, but it seemed like it got away from them. But the focus was turned away, resources were taken away, maybe overconfidence, and 
I think there was a chance to prove something, to prove that this government can be legitimate in peace and prosperity with American involvement. But um, after almost 20 years of yeah. war and violence, they no longer can make that argument. No, so I think you're right. I think it's lost, yeah. Let's go back to the deserter for a moment. Did you guys have a chance or an opportunity? Was there any uh, insight that you could get from interviewing Bergdahl himself? No, I never even thought about it, actually. Uh, I just of a pathetic character. Yes. Um, our deserter is, um, you know, quite quite different. Uh, and this is Alex's idea. He made him uh, a Delta Force captain. Yeah. Uh, so it was a little more, you know, um, shocking when he deserts his post in Afghanistan. Uh, Bergdahl, uh, you know, I might just inspired the story, but when I started uh, doing a little research on Bergdahl, I found him, not only pathetic, but uninteresting. And uh, <laughs> uh, no, nothing, there's nothing there that, uh, that gave us any idea at all other than the idea of why would an American soldier walk off his post. It was just that little spark that, you know, sparked the idea of the book. But I thought Bergdahl might be more interesting when he came out of captivity and he had something to say, but it turns out he, was, he had nothing to say. So <laughs> we just forgot about him and we moved on. Yeah, Alex? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've listened to uh, season two of Serial, the podcast. You know, they do one story over many episodes in season two. It's it basically a maybe 10-hour uh, podcast about Bo Bergdahl. And I, I didn't even, this was well before the book was even uh, existed. I, I listened to it, and it was it was kind of captivating at first. And every hour that went by, it got a little less interesting. And the more you learned, so you peeled away the onion of this guy, and <laughs> in the middle there wasn't, there wasn't anything. It got less and less interesting. So I... Yeah, I think the the, the, the the question, why would you do this, was very interesting. The answer, whatever the answer was, and there's still no clear understanding, even after 10 hours of this podcast, there's no clear answer. He has his explanation, but it's not. It's just not that compelling. But yes. the mystery is compelling, which is what we took. Right, and and for our listeners around the country, the deserter in the deserter is far more interesting than Mr. Bergdahl. Let, let me ask you, and you had to know that if you're being interviewed by a priest, you can ask this. I'm wondering for you, Alex, taking a step into another world, uh, your your dad is a man of faith, and uh, you know, like all of us, there are ebbs and flows to that faith. Nobody nobody comes out perfect in terms of their embrace of faith. But do you remember growing up how your dad was able to and not able to pass on to you uh, spiritual values? Well, uh, one thing you know, I was raised Jewish. Actually, my mother's Jewish, okay. so I was I was raised Jewish. Um, so, but. We we did uh you know we we, we went to mass uh, on Christmas on, on the major holidays and he and then we go traveling around most of the most of the travel we did was around Europe and I think through that and seeing all these historic churches and kind of learning about the history of uh, Christianity in general uh, in Western Europe I I, I kind of got a I think I got a good cultural education of the val the cultural value the artistic value the spiritual value of of religion. Um, Almost from an intellectual standpoint, in a way, because I wasn't raised Christian; I was raised in Reformed Jew, Jewish. So, right. um, but yeah, so that that that, that respect, and also you know, there is there is the awe-inspiring uh, sites, the the creations that have been made, you know, St. Peter's and all all these places that we would go around. So I, it did. Um, I definitely grew up with a a respect for it and a kind of humility to the the scope of this thing and and how it's kind of shape the world and shape people's lives. Alex, let me ask you, with uh, most of my friends in New York uh, who are Jewish, they they usually identify themselves more culturally, historically, uh, tradition, but very few of them talk about being spiritually Jewish. Uh, were you both or, or largely cultural? 
was largely cultural. I mean, I did. I was. I went to Hebrew school. I was permits for. Okay. Um, I didn't. Uh, you know, and I went through obviously like a rebellious. You know, <laughs> when I was twelve <laughs> or thirteen, and I, mean, I cast it all off. And then um, again, I, it's kind of the same. Really, I've had pretty much the same feelings towards towards Judaism as I do to Christianity, which is kind of this you know, more of a, a respect for it as a yeah. As, as, as a kind of vessel of meaning that, that that exists for a lot of people, I don't, I don't personally, uh, I take it as a value system, right, right, know? okay, and also you know, and I, I take it that way, um, and I think for that for in that that capacity is very important, and it it means more to other people, and I respect that. I think that's important too, but yes. not quite the relationship I have. No, I, I like that a lot, Nelson. You know, uh, most every weekend I, I celebrate a Catholic Jewish wedding, and it's it's very commonplace now. It's not a big deal, and it works beautifully, and everybody leaves happy with the rabbi and the priest. But back when you did it, you know, obviously getting into the marriage that produced wonderful Alex, it was not that widely accepted. Did, did you get any kind of blowback for marrying outside your faith back then? No, not really. Um, and this would have been, oh gosh, I, I don't even remember my anniversary over the year I got married, but <laughs> it was probably uh, uh, 1973, let's say. I may make a good guess. And it was, seems like the dark ages, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, my, my parents were okay with it. Her parents were okay with it. And uh, and I live in Garden City, which is you know, a very insular community, to say the least. Right, right. But there was no problem here. Um, there was some talk that could I get into the country club with a Jewish wife? And, you know, anybody has the ability to anonymously blackball you all takes as one, and you don't get into the country club. But there was not a single person who raised an objection to a mixed marriage. Um, and uh, there are a number of mixed marriages in the Garden City, more than we realized, to the, the temple here. I'd say, Alex, about three-quarters of the temple, at least in those days, were uh, the children who were going to, um, you know, Hebrew class and Bar Mitzvah class were um, products of mixed marriages then. So it was, I think, more common than we realized. And, um, and, and, and again, the... Um, you know, I think maybe knowing the origins of both religions, I think people who are educated a little bit more, you know, are a lot less likely to be anti-Semitic because they uh, educated people remember that Christ was a Jew. Right, right. <laughs> I want to thank Nelson and Alex DeMille, first of all, for being so open with me in this interview. They're wonderful. But also for producing The Deserter, which I love. Now, we, we talk about it as a novel today, but uh, I have a funny feeling we're going to see this as a movie someday. I'm encouraging our listeners, don't wait for the movie to come out. Get the book, read the novel. It's great stuff. And I, I thank Nelson and Alex for being a father-son team who have produced something wonderful. Thank you guys so much for being on our show, and much success to you in your future writing career, too. Thank you, Monsignor. Pleasure, pleasure as always. Thank you, my friends. Happy, it's been great speaking with happy you. Happy Hanukkah you so and happy Christmas. Thank you, my friends. As we end today's program, I want to thank you all for being with us. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can send them to me through our website. That is www.CloseEncounterTV.com. Again, www.CloseEncounterTV.com. Or if you want to listen to past personally speaking episodes, go to the same website. Just click on the radio button at the top of the page. Please be sure to visit that site and encourage others to do the same. And you can also listen to past personally speaking episodes by going to www.ollmp.org Again, www.ollmp.org And you'll not only get the show, but you'll get weekly homilies by Monsignor Jim Lasanti. 
I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer of Personally Speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. Our engineer is Chris Wallach. And our audio facility is Dream Recording Studios on Long Island. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.